Today we're going to begin our overview of the history of philosophy with an introduction to the modern age. We did a transition in the last session, and now we move to the 17th century. And the 17th century is typically called the age of reason, because the school of thought called rationalism was the dominant school of thought during this period. Not that there weren't detractors and people who came at it from different views, but the dominant overwhelming movement in philosophy in the 17th century was in the school of rationalism. Now, probably the most important figure for us to look at who is representative of this modern age is René Descartes. Descartes' dates are 1596 to 1650. He was educated by Jesuits and was a loyal son of the Roman Catholic Church. But his principal field of specialization was the science of mathematics. And that's a curiosity that we have to see here because in the age of reason or the age of rationalism, many of the most significant thinkers of that day were not only philosophers, but they were mathematicians. That should strike a chord in your memory bank here, remembering back to Plato, who saw such a close relationship between philosophical thought and mathematical concepts in his theory of forms. And I mentioned in passing that in one sense, mathematics is a form of symbolic logic. Now, before we get to Descartes himself, I want to mention one other thing about mathematics. At this time of worldwide revolution, particularly with the new discoveries in science and astronomy and so on, so much of the innovative work in the world of science at that time came about through the result of the theories postulated by mathematicians. It was the mathematicians who figured out the new astronomy, and it was Newton, you know, who came up with the new physics. And that's been characteristically the way it happens in physics and in science when we think of our own day of the radical changes in life as we know it because of the work of Albert Einstein, who was a mathematician, but his work led us into the atomic age. Now, in very simple terms, the way that works is this. Somebody works out some mathematical equations with a pad and a paper with a pencil, and then applies those equations to real concrete experiences in the world. And they begin to project the findings from the mathematical equations into reality. For example, somebody did a study of the moons of Jupiter and saw that mathematically there should have been one more at a certain place. Well, they point the telescope there and voila, there it is. And what arose during this period was an unbridled sense of optimism with respect to 
the ability of the science of mathematics to continue to be the avant-garde of all scientific discovery because it had performed in such an astonishing way up to that point. Now we'll see a little bit more about what that means when we look now at the thinking of Descartes. Descartes began his work during this period of radical upheaval where the monolithic authority of the church had collapsed. The old medieval systems of the guilds had collapsed. The political structures of Europe had changed. And it was a very unsettling period for many folks because in the most part, while the church was dominating things and had the monolithic authority that it enjoyed, people were content to get their questions answered by the dictates of the church. And so that the idea that the church had espoused the fides implicitum, or the implicit faith that people were to give to the truth of God had been transferred to the truths declared by the church and by church tradition, now all of a sudden there's a crisis because the Protestant Reformation had brought about the greatest disintegration of unity of the Christian institutional church in her history. And so the simple problem that people faced was that authorities that heretofore were united and agreed with each other were now in very serious and profound conflict. And so the person on the street was asking, who can I trust? Who do I believe? Are the Roman Catholics right? Or are the Lutherans right? Or the Presbyterians, the Calvinists, or whoever? And people now were exposed to both positions, and there was a great unsettling of the human spirit with respect to the whole question of truth. Now, some people responded to this with a new kind of skepticism and simply despaired of ever discovering truth. But that wasn't the personality of Descartes. Descartes stepped into this situation of confusion and skepticism, and he said, I want to find certainty. I want to have a knowledge of truth that I can rely on without being open to the vagaries of public opinion. And being a student of mathematics, he was trying to find truths that were as certain to him as the conclusions that could be reached doing the work of math. And so he wrote a book which was very important called The Discourse on Method. It's also famous for his other work, The Meditations, but The Discourse on Method was the book in which he introduced his method or his way of thinking in order to arrive at certainty and in truth. He said that the method of searching for truth involves two elements, intuition and deduction. Now, I have to pause here because when we talk about the term intuition, we liken it to some kind of an imaginative sense or a hunch 
or the thing my wife expresses when we disagree and I try to give a reason for my position and she says, what good is that? I have an intuition and it's over. But the idea that he's using, the way in which he's using the word intuition is to describe a rational concept, a rational idea that is so clear and so distinct that it is manifestly undeniable. So what he was looking for, what he was calling clear and distinct ideas, so that once you have those axioms or those basic primary truths, that to doubt them is to affirm them. They are givens, as it were, of reality. Those clear and distinct ideas form one part of his method. The second part of his method is the application of the principles of deduction. Now, when we talk about deduction, we talk about deducing conclusions from premises which conclusions follow necessarily from the premises. When we talked about Aristotle's delineation of the science of logic, you recall he saw that the first element of logic was the law of non-contradiction. But in addition to that, there were also the laws of immediate inference. The laws of immediate inference. And these laws govern the relationship of certain inferences that are drawn from premises or from propositions. For example, if it's true that all men are mortal, what would that say, which happens to be a general affirmative proposition, a universal affirmative, what would that say about the statement, some men are mortal? Would that statement be true? If all men are mortal, would it also be true that some people or men are mortal, do you suppose? It wouldn't be true. Well, let me put it this way. If all cats were gray, would some cats be gray? Yes, sir. So that here we have a particular affirmation that would be obviously true, right? If all men are mortal, then it'd certainly be true that some men are mortal. Now, you may say, well, wait, it's not true because you're not saying enough because it's more than some, it's all. No, but if all are something, then certainly some are. Now, suppose I said all men are mortal and some men are not mortal. True or false? False. Because if all are in this particular category, then you can't have some who aren't in that category. And so, the laws of immediate inference are drawn to show instantly on the computer of your mind whether or not these propositions jive with each other. Now, we also make a distinction between possible inferences and necessary inferences. For if I say, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man... Therefore, Socrates is mortal. Descartes and all logicians would realize that that conclusion follows necessarily from the relationship of the premises. 
if all men are mortal, and Socrates belongs to the class of men, then we know for sure that Socrates is mortal. That is a necessary inference drawn from the premises. Now, sometimes you can have possible inferences which may or may not be true, but you don't want to confuse those with necessary inferences. And that's a significant thing because many of the conclusions that we reach today, we reach because we read something and we see, well, on the basis of this information, it's possible that the conclusion would be such and such. And then we commit ourselves resolutely to that conclusion. When if it's only a possible inference, it may not be true. To say that it's possibly true is one thing. To say that it's certainly true is another. Now, I labor this point for this reason. Descartes was not satisfied with reaching possible inferences. He wanted to construct a method of knowing that was based, first of all, on the clear and distinct ideas, those necessary truths, like the law of non-contradiction, and on the necessary inferences that could be made from those primary truths. Let me read a statement from his Discourse on Method, where he says this, "...in the subjects we propose to investigate, our inquiries should be directed not to what others have thought, nor to what we ourselves conjecture, but to what we can clearly behold and with certainty deduce." Now, that doesn't mean that he was saying we ignore the wisdom of the ages or the contributions of scholars or of experts today in the school system. We insist that our students, when they're doing research papers, that they cite authorities or cite sources of people who have expertise in the various fields that they're canvassing. But the point Descartes is making here is even 50,000 Frenchmen can be wrong. It's one thing to be aware of what other scholars or other people have said on a certain subject, but the very fact that they have said it does not make it true. How many times have we seen in history, generations after generations, multitudes of people carrying over traditions that finally are exposed as being wrong? So, though you may be aware of what the sum depository of thinking is on a given subject, that in of itself doesn't prove its truth. This is one of the things I love so much about Thomas Aquinas, is that when you're reading Aquinas' theology, you rarely see him quoting other theologians. He's reasoning it for you through and through. And the power of that hits you between the eyes, because you've got to deal with his argument there is an argument for everything that he affirms and everything that he asserts. And this is what Descartes is getting at. He said, don't just tell me what everybody else believes. Give me the argument. Show me its validity. And so he said, even my own conjecture does not bring certitude. But I want to cut through all of the confusion of my day and get down to those basic ideas, those basic truths that are indisputable, that I can take to the bank, 
that I can live my life on, on the basis of certitude. And so, from this, he set out on what I call a systematic doubt process, by which he, being from Missouri, that southern part of France, he decided to question any thought or any proposition that he ever heard, to question it to death. He questioned whether the hand that he saw in front of his face was really there. He questioned his senses. He said, how do I know that what I am perceiving in the external world really exists out there or is not simply a hallucination in my own mind or an illusion perpetrated by some wicked devil who's fooling me. I can't trust in the final analysis with absolute certainty what I perceive in the external world. I'm not going to trust theological authorities. I'm not going to trust scientific authorities. I'm going to doubt everything that I can conceivably doubt. And so he embarked on this process where he doubted everything. But the one thing he couldn't doubt was that he was doubting. Because if you doubt that you're doubting, what are you doing? You're doubting. He said, so one thing I know for sure is that I am doubting. Because if I doubt that I'm doubting, I prove that I'm doubting. Because to doubt doubt requires doubt. So, he came to the certain conclusion that he was doubting. Then he said, okay, what else is clearly contained within the idea of my doubting? Well, for someone to doubt, they must be thinking, because doubt is a form of thinking. You can't have doubt without thought, because doubt is an element of thought. Okay, so now he says, if I'm doubting, then I know that I'm thinking. Now, if I'm thinking, what else does that tell me through resistless logic, according to Descartes? Well, if I'm thinking, I'm having thought, there must be something that's doing the thinking, because thought requires a thinker. And it's not your thought that's giving rise to my doubts. It's my thought that I'm immediately aware of through pure intuition to know that I am the one who's thinking and I'm doubting. And if I am thinking and I'm doubting, I must be. So he gives us his famous formula that we've all heard at one time or another pronounced variously by different people, and I'm going to give you this pronunciation. Cogito ergo sum. Now, perhaps the most important part of this formula is the middle word, ergo, which means what? Therefore. It's the word that signals a conclusion a rational conclusion. 
and he's saying, cogito, I think, I'm cogitating, therefore, sum, I am. So, he finally reaches something about which he can be absolutely certain, namely, his own existence. And some people look at that and laugh, and they say, what a waste of labor to go through all of that only to come to a conclusion that everybody already has at the beginning. But it's very important to understand rationalism that the starting point for all rational investigation now is self-consciousness. That's where it starts. And according to Descartes, it's the only place it can start. Can't start with your consciousness. At least it can't start with your consciousness for me. It can't start with God's consciousness. God can start with God's consciousness, but I can't start with God's consciousness because the only way I could have a consciousness of God would be for me to be having a consciousness of God. And so I have to first trust that I am being conscious before I can even think about being conscious of God or anything else. So that for Descartes, the starting point of all philosophical investigation is with the self. Doesn't mean that's where you end, but that's where you start, with self-consciousness. Now, we're going to look in our next session about some of the implications of this, and some questions that may be raised about it, and have been raised about it, but at least for now we understand why, in the midst of all this skepticism and all this confusion, Descartes sought an undeniable, absolutely certain starting point for the reconstruction of knowledge.